God is sovereign. He is the supreme ruler. This is full of comfort, hope, and inspiring to the Christian. But does this mean, however, that God controls everything, even people's choices? Is our existence fatalistic? Is God the puppet master and we the marionette attached to the strings? Good morning and welcome to God's Resistance. God's Resistance is local in Wilkesbury in the Wyoming Valley and spreading elsewhere. If you need someone to talk to or pray with and are interested in joining a small group to help you live as a disciple of Christ, then stay tuned for contact info. My name is Eric Samborski, and I want to thank you for tuning into God's Resistance, where we resist sin, self, the devil, and the world. You can hear us every Sunday at 9 a.m. on WITK 1550 a.m. and 94.7 FM. If you miss the radio program, then look for the God's Resistance podcast on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube at 9 a.m. every Sunday where these are uploaded and uh, Gab TV as well. And you'll find other content on there uh, besides these radio programs as I'm able to put those on. Uh, you can find us at godsresistance.com and on Facebook, Gab, Gab TV, and YouTube at God's Resistance, spell G-O-D-S-R-E-S-I-S-T-A-N-C-E. Make sure to like, follow, and turn on notifications for helpful spiritual content. You'll find us in person every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. in the public square in Wilkes-Barre and Sunday evenings, uh, late afternoons to evenings uh, in the public square as well. If you want to worship with other believers, then please contact us at gods.resistance at gmail.com or give us a call at 570-362-7782. Let's listen in on today's briefing. We are continuing our look at the doctrines that Calvinism uh, uh, what do you call that? espouses. Uh, we're looking at those doctrines, and we said the last time that it is the acronym TULIP that helps us to understand what these major tenets are. The first one was total depravity, which we concluded uh, by Calvinists actually means total inability that you have no free will. This morning, we are going to be starting uh, looking at the aspect of unconditional election. I do believe that this will be a two to three part series because there's so much um, foundation and background that we have to look at and under in order to understand uh, what Calvinists believe and what the scripture teaches and trying to build a foundation that makes sense for us to stand on. So like I said, again, this may be a two to three part series. Um, and so stay tuned for that. But I'm just going to get right into it here this morning. Uh, so fatalism, determinism, and predeterminism all existed in philosophical thought before the time of Jesus Christ. Calvinism is a heathen philosophy hangover. Uh, there is this Indian, and when I say Indian, I mean from India, uh, it's called Ajavika, which they taught no free will, no karma, but fatalism. When you look into Greek philosophy, you can find different flavors of this. Uh, they have a lot of similarities, but then they have their nuances. Uh, you can find that through Aristotle, Plato, Epicurus, the Stoics, and probably other names besides. They, they taught about this fatalism, this determinism, this philosophical heathenistic thought we find that outside of the scriptures, and yet it has been adopted 
uh, here in the Christian circles through Calvinism. Calvin, through Augustine, has revived this unbiblical thought and philosophy, and he's insisted that it's Christian. And unfortunately, that has been swallowed by Calvinists ever since uh, without just stepping back for a moment and realizing this is not what the scriptures teach. Um, This is Greek philosophy mixed with scripture. Unfortunately, then, uh, Greek and pagan philosophies have heavily shaped Christian thought and teaching through the centuries. And the result is that we, as, well, I say we, Calvinists, are putting meaning into the scripture that is not naturally there. And it's not just Calvinism. There may be other Greek hangovers uh, that we put into the scripture, and it's not necessarily taught in there, but we like to impose that meaning on there. And that's where we have to be very careful and understand our Bible um, and read it and study it so that we can show ourselves approved and a workman that needeth not be ashamed. The question then is, why is there such a resurgence of Calvinism again in our day? I would point, this is one amongst probably many factors, to the translation, the English Standard Version, or the influence of it. Um, Now, they did an an incredible job marketing it. Uh, There's many very high-profile Christian people in the uh, U.S. that use the ESV or that have endorsed it. Um, They do a great job with marketing. They have study Bibles. They have... um, Bibles that every other page you can write notes on, or they they sell just books of the Bible that are for note-taking. They appeal to college-age people. They do a great job marketing, by the way. The problem is, if you look behind the ESV, there's no diverse scholarship uh, that worked on the translation. Many of the other mainstream translations have people from all different doctrinal streams, and that provides a check and a balance The ESV, however, is not that way. It's exclusively Reformed or sympathetic, uh, Reformed people sympathetic to the Reformed teaching. That's the scholarship behind the ESV. It's one thing to create a study Bible where the commentary is biased towards a doctrinal position. Uh, No problems with that. I may not agree with your doctrinal position, but there's that's one thing. The dangerous thing is then when you have a bias towards a particular doctrinal position, and then that is a supposed to be a mainstream translation. Now I can't I can't even say sometimes there are there are individuals that had translated the Bible themselves. I don't hold as much weight with those, but it's interesting to look at. But this Bible is put out as if it were a standard that everybody could use when, in fact, there are questionable times throughout there that lean more in a Calvinistic direction. I'm not trying to impugn the motives of these people. I'm simply stating that that is the case. Um, When that happens and then you market this Bible, Not only are those subtle differences in translation put inside of it and people are reading it, but then they look at the people who endorse it and the people who endorse it at large seem to go towards a Calvinistic uh, bent. That doesn't mean everybody's a Calvinist. So I think that this has been a large contributing factor to the resurgence of Calvinism. I think another uh, contributing factor to the resurgence of Calvinism is that things are so messed up and backwards and most of the time Calvinists, um, to the shame of many other people, have done a better job at trying to go through several books of the Bible. I just don't happen happen to agree with their conclusions, but I do have 
many Calvinist friends. I do look up to some Calvinist people for their scholarship. I do love them. I believe a lot of them are saved people. I just think that the the area of soteriology, which is the study of sin and salvation as it relates to men, is so so whack. It's it's totally a Greek hangover and not the scriptures. So in order for us to understand this doctrine of unconditional election here this morning, I'd like to start with the idea of sovereignty. This is the huge kingpin uh, for the Calvinist crowd. They say, we believe in the sovereignty of God and insinuate that no one else believes that, um, you know, or maybe they believe some lesser version of the sovereignty of God. But the problem is that they have a wrong idea of sovereignty. John Piper, he was asked uh, in, I think, one of his Desiring God podcasts, you can find this article also uh, because they put it in words, has God predetermined every tiny detail in the universe, such as dust particles in the air and all of our besetting sins? His answer was, yes, dot, dot, dot. So the crucifixion of his son was quoting Isaiah 53.10, the bruising by the father of the son. Therefore, the worst sin that was ever committed was ordained by God. And the answer is yes. He controls everything and he does it for his glory and our good. That seems already contradictory. So John Piper, I would agree that God is in control over all these little tiny details in the universe, but as it relates to a human being and their choices in free will, God is not control over that according to the scriptures. But according to Calvinism, most, I would say, five-point Calvinisms, the five-point Calvinists, they're the ones that really believe it lock, stock, and barrel, John Piper being one of these. He says that God is even in control um, or predetermines our every besetting sin. So that makes God responsible for it. That's a problem. Uh, the Westminster defines uh, this sovereignty of God in this way. God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, one whereby from all eternity he hath for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, and two, especially concerning angels and men. So God... Uh, we're told in the scripture has foreknowledge. But the problem here is that just because God has foreknowledge doesn't make him responsible for the things that he foreknows because he is God and he can't help but know all those things. Calvinists, however, believe that foreknowledge is a result of God's decrees. God knows because he decrees. The Bible teaches differently though, that God's foreknowledge is a result of his omniscience but never a foreordaining by way of decree everything that ever happened. That is not God's foreknowledge. He can't help but know because he's God and he's all-knowing. The problem of the cause of wickedness in sin arises from this view of the sovereignty of God. The logical conclusion of this view is, uh, the absolute view of sovereignty is the predetermining foreordaining decree of every action of man. God is then responsible for sin. So uh, one of the answers in the confession is every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, one, goodness, two, and holiness of God, three, and against his righteous law, four, deserveth his wrath and curse, five, both in this life, six, and that which is to come, seven, and cannot be explained but by the blood of Christ. Let me read that again with all the, without all the numbers in there. Every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God and against his righteous law, deserveth his wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come, and cannot be expiated but by the blood of Christ. I agree 
with the idea that if we uh, rebel against God's sovereign rule, then we incur his wrath. The problem, however, is the previous statement is that God predetermines every act of man, and yet somehow sins the men then sin against the sovereignty of God, even though it's not man's fault or doing because God's doing everything for him. So it's a total logical inconsistency and a most horrid misrepresentation of a holy God. I do want to take a pause for a minute and just say that I have received lots of help from A.M. Hill's Fundamental Christian Theology, the book Contrast and Creeds by Dale Yoakam, and another book by a man, Vance, uh, called The Other Side of Calvinism. By the way, I do not agree with everything that that man, Vance, says. He was a part of the um, school of, uh, I believe it's Peter Ruckman down in Pensacola, Florida, which I believe is not very good. However, he did say some good things, so I don't want you to get the idea that I go along with everything that that man says. Most of what I got is from Dale Yoakum and from A.M. Hills. I would encourage any of you to buy uh, those books, to read through those things. They have some pretty incredible arguments, and I have quoted at length, uh, some of these men. And I do that because I couldn't say it any better than them. And I agree with everything that they've said. Uh, so we're going to keep moving on now. The problem is that God did not make people act wicked, but he made those people who chose to act wicked. People choosing wickedness does not detract from God's glory, power, or sovereignty. In fact, the wrath of men uh, end up praising God and glorifying his justice. When people choose wickedly and are then judged for their free actions, God is seen as just in his dealings with them. God is an unjust monster, however, if he damns to hell those that he caused to sin. James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Notice in that scripture verse, uh, that or verse is, the responsibility, and then hence the fault, lies in the man, but it doesn't lie in God. This ends, this verse, this section ends saying every good gift is from above, which excludes the bad gifts, such as those that, according to the Calvinistic system, would be predestined to be reprobates. God is not the author of temptation, but somehow the author of sin. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Calvinism is an insult to intellect, morality, and justice. The glory of God, instead of being magnified through the Calvinistic system, is dragged in the dust with this repurposed and reclothed Gnosticism. And that's really all Calvinism is, is Gnosticism revived with new clothes on. The true idea of sovereignty is a little bit different. God can be sovereign in that there is no authority above him that has the right to rule and judge all. The sovereign of any nation does not make every choice for all of its citizens, where something like that takes place, you have people being oppressed by a cruel tyrant. The question then is, is God a tyrant? I think all of us would answer emphatically, no. But then how can we call people tyrants when they act to control every facet of their subjects, you know, under them, uh, control every facet of their lives, but call God glorious and good when he supposedly acts the same way? God can be totally sovereign without any threat to his majesty and power, while people have a free will.
um, that was something that I had just wrote together. I had to read through that uh, because I wanted to make sure I got every point. But that is the idea of sovereignty. And then there's illustrations through some other men that kind of bring up some of that same point that I'll get to throughout this whole uh, walking through Tulip. Uh, in Calvinism, everything is predetermined. Uh, then what about these declarations of God himself? And we'll get into those declarations in just a minute after the break. In case you've just tuned in, you are listening to God's Resistance, where we resist sin, self, the devil, and the world. You can hear us every Sunday at 9 a.m. on WITK, 1550 a.m. and 94.7 FM. Visit and like our social media accounts with Facebook, Twitter, Gab, Gab TV, and YouTube. Visit our website at www.godsresistance.com and contact us by email at gods.resistance at gmail.com or call us at 570-362-7782. As I had asked before the break, if everything is determined by God, then what about these declarations of God himself? Jeremiah 32, 35. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Moloch, which I commanded them not. Neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. But according to the Calvinistic system, God has predetermined everything that a man does and man has no free will. How does that jive then when he says this never came into his mind that they should do this abomination? Doesn't make logical sense. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. So we find God's will is that he wants to gather his people to himself. And then he says the people's will was contrary. Now, if God is responsible for it all, this makes no sense. This declaration makes no sense. Under Calvinism, the thought is that things are so fixed and unchangeable with God because of his absolute sovereignty. Arthur Pink says, to affirm that God changes his purpose is either to impugn his goodness or deny his eternal wisdom. But then let's look at Esther 4, 14. <clears throat> For if thou altogether, Mordecai is saying to Esther, if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Here we have another problem. Mordecai apparently believed it was God's purpose to use Esther in deliverance uh, of the Jews. And it turned out that that was what happened. But he also believed that if she did not respond to that challenge, that God would, God's purpose would still prevail and you find somebody else to do that. So Arthur Pink says God doesn't change his purpose or his plan. They may say, well, it was always his purpose and plan otherwise. Mordecai thought differently. So maybe Mordecai just wasn't a good Calvinist. Uh, God's immediate purpose for Israel in the Exodus was to bring them into the land of Canaan. But his immediate plans, as we know from reading the Bible, were thwarted by the disobedience of Israel. So God had a will, and then the people of Israel had a will, which was contrary. Though his immediate plan was thwarted, his ultimate plan still came to pass within the next generation, uh, Joshua and the generation uh, of Joshua. 
Then we look at 1 Kings 20, verse 42. Benadad was supposed to be killed by Ahab per God's command. So there's God's will. Ahab, however, failed to do that. So God's immediate purpose here was also thwarted by the choice of a man, Ahab. God's ultimate purpose, however, was still accomplished through Haziel, Ahab's successor. So here we find God has a purpose. He tells people what he expects, and then people don't do what he says. And God then, in spite of their rebellion, still accomplishes his purpose. That is a correct view of the sovereignty of God. It's not so fixed that it's fatalistic. It's fixed in that God is in control despite what men do. So God is not absolutely sovereign in the sense that he determines and predetermines everything. God has sovereign limits that he himself has made. And that doesn't go against his sovereignty. Think about it. No, no king or monarch controls every single facet of everyone's life. But when you look at a king, you don't say, well, they're not really in control because if they are on the throne and they're in control, they are, and they can exercise whatever justice they want upon those that rebel against them. It just doesn't make logical sense. And I hope you understand that. I read through the thread of comments in a YouTube video where people were like, I'm having real hard time discerning all this. I, I just really am having a hard time. And I responded and said, the reason you're having a hard time is because the spirit of God is giving you discernment. He's giving you a mind to think because these things are totally illogical and it's not what the scripture says. And it goes against the morality. It goes against intellect. It goes against the true justice and holiness of God. It's it's a, a, a sham that brings God, uh, uh, makes a picture of God to be a monster rather than the God that is revealed in the Bible. So God does have sovereign limits. He permits the devil to operate down through history, but he does that within defined limits. Uh, individuals are permitted to sin if they choose, but God is able to step in and stop because of sin whenever he chooses. It was foreordained that Christ would come into the world and die as a perfect sacrifice for mankind. God allowed men to make free choices that ultimately ended up in the death of Christ. All of those people, according to the scripture, were called to repentance, but they chose not to. God used the free choice of men because of his foreknowledge to accomplish his purpose. God knew what would happen ahead of time because he's God, but he didn't make the choices for these wicked people uh, and the wicked kings and rulers that crucified Christ. That was their choice. But God uses the wrath of men to praise him, uh, according to the scriptures. Nations we find in the scripture they choose to war against Christianity and rebel against God. In spite of that, however, Jesus will still rule upon the throne and win. That is God's ultimate purpose. And then Arthur Pink, the, the great Calvinist, even admits this. He said, Christ is sovereign, supreme over all creatures. He bridles both men and demons, saying to them, as he does to the proud waves of the sea, hitherto shalt thou come, but no further. As the king of Zion, Christ has his chain about the necks of Satan and all his wicked instruments. And when they have gone their appointed lengths, they are obliged to stop. We see this in the case of Job. When the devil was permitted to harass him, he went only so far as his chain allowed. So it is now. This statement, however, is inconsistent 
And it flies in the face of Pink's belief about the absolute sovereignty of God. The reason that there's these inconsistencies inside of the Calvinists is because I do believe they have an honest heart. So when they come up to some things that make God out to be a monster and, and make things out to be in, in such an ill reflection of the glorious gospel, they try to, you know, twist things around to, to make more logical sense. So they end up speaking out of both sides of their mouths and making logical inconsistencies. I do believe that those logical inconsistencies can exist, however, even though their heart may be right with God. But this is dangerous, this teaching, because it really um, wrecks the gospel system and it drags God's name in the dust and makes things terrible. God is not free according to his sovereign limits. God is not free to do whatever he pleases outside of who he's revealed himself to be. In Genesis 18.25, he said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He's appealing to our common sense, to our sense of justice, our sense of righteousness. And the, the, the plea is, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Let me ask you, dear listener, if God predetermines every action that you and I do, and we have no free will, and then we are responsible for those predetermined actions that we have no control over, and we end up going to hell because of something God has forced us to do because we are the, the puppets of God. Does that, does that make you think that God is doing that which is right and just? I can't see that. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. Furthermore, as far as the sovereignty of God is concerned, the early church fathers believed that God had sovereign limits. Justin Martyr in the second century said, let some suppose that we say that whatever happens happens by a fatal necessity because it is foretold as known beforehand. This too we explain, if all things happen by fate, neither is anything at all in our own power. For if it be fated that this man be good and this other evil, neither is the former meritorious nor the latter to be blamed. And again, unless the human race have the power of avoiding evil and choosing good by free choice, they're not accountable for their actions of whatever kind they be, but it is by free choice they both walk uprightly and stumble. So he didn't believe this absolute sovereignty according to the Calvinists. Irenaeus in uh, between the years 130 and 200 said, God made a free agent from the beginning, possessing his own power, even as he does his own soul, to obey the behests of God voluntarily and not by compulsion of God and in man as well as in angels. He has placed the power of choice so that those who had yielded obedience might justly possess what is good, given indeed of God, but preserved by themselves. So he said, they have a free choice. They need to choose and walk with God. And then they are kept by the power of God as they cooperate with him, according to Irenaeus. Also, uh, Athenagoras, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and Chrysostom, uh, they have the same sentiments as these other two. Why does God govern then? Uh, if we're talking about sovereignty. Is it simply because he has the power to do it? This is the Calvinist idea is that he just displays his overwhelming power and we have no say in it and that's supposed to bring him glory. Well, A.M. Hills says this, the Calvinistic doctrine of the unconditional election of a fixed and definite number of moral beings to everlasting life without any merit in them and all the means and uh, agencies inevitably leading thereunto and that all the rest of the moral beings of the universe were malignantly created and purposely endowed with possibilities of the most excruciating agony and had unavoidable sin fixed upon them by a heartless creator who endowed them with an eternity of woe, the horrors of endless damnation, just to display before an appalled universe his resistless power 
Does that sound like the God of the Bible? That's horrendous. He governs because of who he is in his nature and in his moral character, according to Hills. God governs the universe because it needs to be governed and because he and he alone is perfectly able to govern. He doesn't govern just for the sake of the display of his overwhelming power. The law which God proclaims and enforces is the moral law, the law of nature and of reason. So God appeals to us in our sense of morality and reason and the law of nature, and he rules according to that because that's how he's revealed himself to be. Uh, the effect of God's government then, according to Hills, is that the knowledge of God's existence and attributes brings to men from their own moral constitution the conviction that he holds them accountable for all their moral conduct. Calvinist view amounts to this. Now, if a human society should learn that a farmer reared litters of pigs and then put them to death by slow, lingering, excruciating torture just to display his power over the helpless swine, the society would promptly put the cruel wretch behind the bars with the approbation of all decent civilized people. But here are theologians who vainly imagine that because God is infinite in power, therefore he has a perfect right to create billions of moral beings on purpose to torture them in an unavoidable hell forever as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to the praise of his glorious grace. Dear listener, I hope that you see as we have gone through this, the biblical view of sovereignty is not at odds with us having free choice. In fact, God has power over all things. And in spite of all the rebellion and free choice of men, his purposes will go forward and stand firm regardless. The question is, what will you do with God's claim, his sovereignty over all of existence and how judgment is going to take place? What are you going to do in your life? You need to give us a call at 570-362-7782 or email us gods.resistance at gmail.com. But above all, join the resistance, God's resistance. Thank you to Spectacular Sound Productions for giving permission for the use of the song Heroes and Monsters, which was edited and used in part on this production. The permission was granted under Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International Creative Commons license. That license may be found at https colon forward slash forward slash creative commons dot org forward slash licenses forward slash by hyphen essay forward slash 4.0 forward slash legal code.